Thank you. It's my privilege again to lead corporate prayer. And it's very special today to have the, uh, the children and the young people share that with us. So let us pray. Lord God, as we come together this morning, young and old, we acknowledge that you are three persons, one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We declare that you are a God of relationship who desires to know us all deeply. Draw us close to you through our time of prayer together this morning. Father, we glimpse your character in the beauty of creation and sense your power in the thunder and lightning of the storm. Jesus, we see your love stretched out upon the cross of Calvary and are in awe of your sacrifice, pure love poured out for humanity. Holy Spirit, we see your presence in the lives transformed and desire to hear from your still, small voice, comforting, guiding and calling. Lord, we give thanks that you bring wholeness and peace beyond understanding. We give thanks that your arms are always wide open, welcoming home the prodigal and us. We give thanks that your promises are sure and that your kingdom is eternal. Lord, in a world full of need, where so many situations seem overwhelming and things often look hopeless, we recognise that only in you and through you will answers be found. At this time, we pray specifically for those who are facing displacement due to war and civil unrest. We think of Ukraine, of Syria, of Myanmar, of Sudan, of the West Bank, to name just a few. We pray for those who are hungry day after day. We're shocked by the UN figures quoted in the media this week that put the number of people who go hungry each day to be more than 700 million worldwide. We pray for those who are sleeping rough, even on the streets of our own city, and wonder how this can be in a nation often called the lucky country that has so much wealth. Lord, help us to be aware of those around us. Give us your eyes to see the needs of others. Give us your wisdom to know how to help. Let us be your hands and feet as we serve others, and may they see and come to know your love through our actions. Lord, you ask us to pray for our leaders and those in authority. We thank you for the stable parliamentary system we have in Australia, and we pray for those in government and those in opposition. We pray for our Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, and for the Leader of the Opposition, Mr Dutton. We pray for our State Premier, Mr Malinowskis, and the Leader of the Opposition, Mr Spears. Lord, we pray for all those in positions of authority and ask that righteousness and truth may be the hallmark of all they do. We thank you for politicians of all political persuasions who are prepared to stand up for Christian principles. We pray particularly for Claire Scrivens, who was attacked in the media this week 
for her pro-life stand. Lord, we have so much to give thanks for. Forgive us for times we don't stop to confess who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to set our eyes and our hearts on you each day. Renew our spirits and fill us daily with your Holy Spirit. Give us the courage to witness boldly to our faith in both word and deed. Lord, as we close, we pray for Ben as he comes to share with us. Give him your words and open our hearts to receive the message you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, especially people at home or listening later. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Ben, and my uh, main claim to fame is I'm married to Kathy, which is, which is quite good. Uh, actually, our family's been part of Hills for about eight years. It's almost exactly we were looking at it this week, and um, yeah, that's kind of a, a nice little, little segue that it's taken me eight years to get up the front here. Um, Unlike Dan, though, last week, I'm not breaking a 45-year streak. I'm a bit older than Dan. Um, I have preached before, though. Um, I was sneaky. I, I spoke for probably five or six minutes uh, and then played a song for about eight. <laughs> um, probably wasn't the best, but it, but it was a good song. Still is a good song. Look, as I was preparing for today, I did wonder a few times if I could get away with a 25-minute time of silence. That might be, be a good idea. Um, did decide against that eventually, um, but, but we could perhaps have a vote at the end to see if that would have been preferable. <laughs> Look, when, when Mike asked me to speak, I, I was reluctant at first, to be honest. Um, but then when, as I was thinking about the topic, Kingdom of God, for me, there's almost always a, a particular phrase which comes to mind uh, when I, I think about the Kingdom of God. and. It's the idea that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. Um, and some of you might already, seeing that phrase, be going, okay, well, yep, I know where you're going with that, but some might not. Some of you might be wondering, how can something be both now and not yet? Shouldn't it be one or the other? Um, after all, I can eat the cake now or I can eat the cake later. I can't have my cake and eat it too. Um, or can you? So the idea of the kingdom of God being now and not yet is, is a little bit of a paradox. Um, and if we go to the old uh, Oxford English, this is the definition of, uh, of a paradox. An apparently absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition or a strongly counterintuitive one, which investigation, analysis or explanation may nevertheless prove to be well-founded or true. Don't know about you, but I didn't find that super helpful. Um, <laughs> Here's a few sort of silly examples that I pulled out. The idea that, you know, nobody goes to that restaurant, it's too crowded. Um, the more choices you have, the less satisfied you are with each one, the, the idea of analysis paralysis. Uh, the more you try to argue with someone, the less likely you are to convince them of your perspective. Um, I really like this as a definition, though. Um, G.K. Chesterton, dubious, whether it was him or not. Uh, paradox is the tree standing on its head to get attention. In terms of, um, at, look, and that's, that's one thing I love about this idea of the kingdom of God being now and not yet. It's true, and it helps us see more deeply into the kingdom what it's about than we would without this, this idea. 
So in short, when Jesus came to earth to live, die and rise again, the kingdom of God was finally inaugurated. It was started. Jesus ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit on the apostles, which we've just been going through in Acts. We've seen the early church. We see all the way through Acts, through the New Testament, uh, through church history, that the world is different after Jesus came and inaugurated this kingdom. The kingdom is now. It's already happening as we sit here in 2023 and it's been happening for about 2,000 years. But there's also a real sense, um, and, and thank you, Anthony, for your prayer. We heard that coming through, that things are not quite what he promised. There's still sickness, death, hunger, hate, strife, war. So I don't think any of us would say that the kingdom is, is totally here. So there's still this, this real sense of the kingdom being not yet. Um, there's more of the kingdom to come, which is what we look forward to as Christians and God's people. We live in the kingdom now, but look forward uh, with hope to, to the not yet, uh, which will consummate or fulfil all the promises that Jesus made and that we see in the Bible. So that's my basic point. The kingdom is here already. We're living in it but we still have hope of more to come or a more complete and final state of the kingdom of God. So we could pull the pin there. Um, sorry, kids. I'm going to keep going for a bit longer. And what I really would like to do now is have a look at some of the aspects of the kingdom of God, see how they fit in with this idea of now and not yet and tease out a bit more of what that means for us here today, looking forward and back. Um, now, this is going to cover a lot of ground, or some ground at least, that has already been visited by the previous people we've heard on this topic. I've had a re-listen to, to Bev and Carol, who kicked us off a few weeks ago, to Kathy two weeks ago, and then Andrew and Dan last week in preparation for this, and really benefited from what they had to say. Um, look, as a quick plug, I would encourage anyone who's, who's missed those weeks or any, any sermons, um, you can go back and re-listen. All of them... The guys on the desk record every week and all of them are available on the website or on the podcast, usually by the afternoon that they're preached. So if you ever need, want to go back and have a listen or, or something that, oh, gee, what was that a few weeks ago, that's available. If, if you'd like to know how to do that, happy to, to chat you through how, to, how that can work. Um, just a plug. Anyway, as mentioned, some of what I have to say will recap what's already said, but I, I hope it will be helpful for you to hear it as it was really for me to, to prepare it. So the first thing I'd like to do is zoom out and see what this, why, why this Kingdom of God idea is so important. Um, and like Andrew last week, I'm a bit of a nerd and probably the first thing I do when is, is this important, how often is it mentioned? Like is it, does it come up a lot? And it turns out, uh, and Andrew did mention this last week, there's, well, there's a few terms for in the Gospels and the New Testament that point to this same idea of the Kingdom of God. Bev pointed out that in Matthew we almost never get Kingdom of God, or it is a few times but not really, and we almost always hear Kingdom of Heaven. Um, this is probably because Matthew's writing to a, a very Jewish audience and they didn't really like saying or even writing the name of God. And that does make sense if you think about how the Jewish people encountered God. Um, Dan gave a great example last week talking about the Exodus when the Jews are coming out of Egypt, um, crossing the Red Sea, there's a pillar of cloud and fire that God's in that they're following. They go to Mount Sinai, the whole mountain is shaking. Um, that would be pretty, pretty incredible. And from the Jewish point of view, God is, is this scary, holy, set-apart um, person who's, who's 
really, and you, you really see that as you go through the Old Testament, there's this real separation um, that the Jews, even, even in terms of how they worship God, they, they have to, to, to sacrifice um, to come to God. There's priests that are between them and God. There's, there's mediation. So there's, they're keeping God at arm's length and they learn to, to keep God at arm's length. Um, they call him names like God Most High, so they don't refer to him by name. And this is probably one thing that, that strikes us with Jesus. Jesus tells us to call God Abba, which is, if you don't know, it's kind of an intimate term like Daddy, um, rather than even father, which is, which is a real contrast from the Jewish view. So Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. That's in deference to Jewish sensibilities at the time. Mark and Luke do use kingdom of God most of the time. Uh, John's different again. He has a few references to the kingdom of God, but he uses life or eternal life. So these three terms are, are a bit different. And um, to sort of see how they, how they are linked together, um, I want to look at a story quickly in the Bible that we'll come back to. Um, that I think does help make the case that those three terms, eternal life, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, are actually linked and referencing the same thing. Um, so, and you might want to turn in your Bibles and keep your thumb in this one because we will come back to it. So Matthew 19, 16 to 23, this is the story of the rich young man or sometimes the rich young ruler. Um, here's the story, but I do want you to notice the terms I've highlighted and I'll just quickly read through it. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So here we can see the three terms referring to the same thing in the same passage. Jesus is, is using them, well, the young man asked about eternal life, but Jesus is essentially using them interchangeably. So with that in mind, if we add up the times these terms appear in the Gospels, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, uh, eternal life, life, there are about 80 individual references across the Gospels, maybe a few more. Um, if we expand that out to cases where the same story appears in multiple Gospels, there's well over 100 references um, checking of God and friends in the Gospels, which is a lot, so it's important. Um, thing is, what does that mean then, the term? The Gospels sort of expect us to know. Carol actually gave a great definition a few weeks ago. The kingdom of God is God's ruling everywhere all the time. Um, but there's a sense that the... Um, in the, in the early, in the Gospels, there's not really a definition that this term just appears. Here's a couple of uh, places where that happens. So in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, that's Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And then in Matthew 3, uh, verse 2, John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the audience of the day again remember so Jesus and and uh, 
and John would have been speaking to, to pretty much a, a Jewish audience, so they would have had a sense of what kingdom of God in heaven, uh, or kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven meant. We saw earlier um, kingdom of heaven was probably a term that was a bit more acceptable to a Jewish audience who knew their history, had this holy fear of God. They would have known that Old Testament pretty well. They would have known the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the journey into Egypt, the exodus, the 40 years in the desert, the conquering of the promised land that we read about in Judges, then the era of the kings with the reign of Saul, and then the high point, really, of, of that whole kingdom of King David, and then the decline through Solomon, despite his splendour and wealth, uh, down through a sort of a series of worse kings, high, high spots like uh, Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, uh, into exile, where the people of Israel are removed from the promised land uh, by the conquering Babylonians. So we then see what life in exile was like for uh, in Daniel and Esther, and then in Ezra and Nehemiah we see this limited return of the Jews coming back to the promised land, but essentially under occupation um, by the Babylonians. So this, and this is the state that uh, we find them in in the Gospels. The Jewish people, they're living in the land that God promised them, but they're not in charge. The Romans are, and the land's called Palestine. They know their history. They also know the promises of God, though. And in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promised David he would always have a son on the throne, and the prophets would have reinforced this as well. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's from 2 Samuel 7, 16. So that's God speaking through Nathan to David, promising that David would have a son on, on the throne forever. So with that in mind, the Jews would have been looking for this when they heard Jesus and John start talking about the kingdom of God. They're looking around at the Romans. They're expecting a Messiah. That's the, the figure, the name that's given uh, through, um, through the prophets. They would expect this Messiah to come and restore um, essentially a kingdom. They'd sit on the throne, throw out the Romans, and that's the context they'd have. They'd be looking around expecting this Messiah to come in and, and sort of set up or restore this earthly political territorial kingdom, probably by military means. And that makes sense because at this time, what kind of other kingdom is there except for a territorial kingdom? That's, that's what they're, they're all like. But then, as Bev reminded us, and as Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He says that in John 18, 36. And Jesus goes on to point out that if it was, then this wouldn't be happening. My, my followers would be defending me, would be, um, would be essentially not letting you do this, wouldn't let me be, be uh, arrested and killed. Um, even in Matthew 21, so Matthew 21, that's when the triumphal entry, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this is before it all goes a bit sour, Jesus rides in on this magnificent stallion, this incredible warrior horse. Or does he? No, he comes in on a donkey. Um, so Jesus isn't really interested in military, military conquest. He's not interested in this kind of standard kingdom. So, so what kind of kingdom is he interested in? Um, he does give us lots of, lots of hints. Uh, I guess he, well, he does tell us, really. There's lots of these kingdom of God is like statements through the Gospels, often in, told in parables. Uh, I think Jim's going to talk about that a bit next week, but let's have a quick look at a few jump through the slide. There we go. Uh, so Mark 4, 30 to 32. Um, kingdom of God, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown 
on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, sorry, this is from Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So these parables, we see that the kingdom of God is not really an instant thing. Um, it's a process. It starts from something small, even hidden, something you, you can't see at first, and then gradually grows to the point where its influence just can't be denied. If you think about the leaven, the leaven is affecting every piece of flour. It's gone all the way through that flour. So this is, this is getting back to this idea of the kingdom being now, not yet. It's starting out. Um, it's not yet at its full potential. There's a process to it. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. So this is um, another parable sometimes called the wheat and the tares. Um, and we'll read through this one. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads... Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may also uproot uh, the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. And there's a similar one from Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this time we get a sense of the kingdom of God coexisting with evil, at least for a time, uh, until some not, not yet future time when the evil is purged from the kingdom. So that's a, a couple of things that would have had the Jews scratching their heads, because this isn't what they would have been expecting in terms of what the kingdom was about. They would have been expecting it to happen, bang, here's the kingdom, hooray. Uh, not this sort of slow slow burn that Jesus seems to be, be telling us about. Um, but it's not only the Jews that are, that are sort of a bit confused by the kingdom and what it's about. We see in um, Matthew 18, Jesus' disciples get a bit of a lesson as well about when they're asking who's great, who's up in the kingdom, who's down. Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You see a bit similar in Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 10, 13 and 14. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, 
placed his hands on them and blessed them. I love that passage. Sorry, I don't know if you do as well, but yeah, I just think that's awesome. So look, this, this, is, this is great. So the kingdom of God is upside down. We've got to be like children. Now, this doesn't mean that we get to the end of Explorers or Tribe uh, and think to yourself, well, I'll just stop here, kids. So if you're in Explorers and Tribe, you've got to graduate to sermons and listen and pay attention. Um, <laughs> You can't get to that and think, okay, I've done all I need to do. I'll just stick to my childlike faith for the duration. It's here in the Bible, right? Surely that's what I need to do. Well, as is so often in the Bible, we've got other passages like this one in Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So we should absolutely keep praying, reading our Bibles, studying, listening to sermons, especially good ones if we can find them, meeting with others, spending time with God and growing in faith to maturity. But at the end of the day, God is God and we are not. There are just some things in our lives that we have to hand over to God and say, God, I really don't understand what is going on here, what you did there, but you are God and I'm not, and I'm going to trust that you know better than I do. That can be super hard to do. Um, I don't think that means we can't ask questions of God. I think he welcomes our questions. He gave us inquiring minds. But whenever we're trying to understand, we have to remember that he is God and we aren't. I think one of the ways that we know we can trust him is what we're looking at right here. He sent his own son, Jesus, to bring us into the kingdom of God. So it's not that he doesn't care. Whatever we think, whatever we're going through, we know that whatever God is allowing us to do, it's not happening because he doesn't care. I really loved Bev's image a couple of weeks ago of a loom. Um, The idea that there's all these different threads that are coming together, um, but we don't see the whole picture until later. There's all these dark and weird and strange bits going into it. Um, but the whole, the whole final work is something we don't often see until later in life or maybe not even until the next life. Um, look, but I think because God is the great weaver, without getting too excited about it, I think we can trust that it will be good because he loves us. Please don't, don't misunderstand. I don't think we just have to shrug and be stoic about stuff and say, oh, well, you know, it's God, so I'll just live with it. Um, th- there are things that take years to work through, and some things change us forever. There's no doubt about that. But I think God is patient and kind, and he can, we can trust him. I think we can and should bring things to God. I think, um, yeah, one thing, one thing that... Um, that struck me as I was thinking about this more was, was um, I thought about Jesus in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. So before he's crucified, what does Jesus do? He goes to the garden to pray. He talks to God. He's, he's in anguish. He's at the point where his sweat is, Luke records this, his sweat is like drops of blood. Um, I don't know about you, but I've, I've never been stressed out to that point. Um, Jesus is in anguish. But even so, what does Jesus do? He trusts the Father. And I think if Jesus can do that, we can. So this, to me, is, is where, again, the, the not yet is so important. How it is right now is not how it will always be. We all have things in our lives that have been done to us or we've done that we wish were different. They shape us. But I want to tell you that they're not bigger than God. 
Understanding that truth in each of our situations may be the work of a lifetime, probably is. But we have to start from this idea that God is God and trust he, he is who he says he is. Like a child would trust the most loving and perfect father imaginable because that's who he is. So another thing, I guess, about the kingdom, it demands an undivided heart. So I've got a, a few... A few scriptures there, um, Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, either you'll hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters, Matthew 12.30 and Matthew 19.29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive, it, will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. So the kingdom's great, God's great, but it's not without cost to us or to anyone. We can't serve two masters. All of us need to make a choice at some point. Um, this goes back to the point around repenting and believing that we saw earlier from, from John and from Jesus as coming into the kingdom, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do. We can try and keep the law and do the right thing. That's good to do, no doubt. But if we're doing that, uh, and expecting God to owe us, we're doing it wrong. If we're thinking, well, look, I try pretty hard, I mostly do the right things, and surely that's worth something, Jesus says no, that we need to forsake all, even father and mother. Remember the story of the rich young ruler that we started with. He was doing awesome. He was awesomely, sorry, grammar. He was doing really well. He, he was keeping the law. He was, he was following it. But there's just one thing, one little tiny thing that he wasn't doing. He was holding his wealth too tightly. Perhaps it was holding on to him. He couldn't give it up, and so he went away sad. I mean, that's, that's a, this is it. There's no, you can't have a divided heart. You have to be, be all in on this. That means, for me, putting God first. Jesus tells me I should seek first his kingdom. As Dan and Carol both shared, it's too easy for things to get in the way, for us to want to have our own way. Um, you know, work can become pretty hectic. You have to do family stuff. And it all adds up. And then you feel like, okay, I'm trying to do the right thing here. I'm trying to please many masters. Um, and that, that can be, well, I think we all know what that's like. But look, if you choose to make time for God, it can really make a difference. I really appreciated what Dan shared last week about uh, getting into reading the Bible and the difference that's made for him. Carol and others have talked about every day with Jesus. And I'm sure there's all kinds of different practices out there that people are, are using to, to make time for God and to, to draw closer to him. I want to encourage you that if you're doing something to keep going, because I believe God will honour that. And if you're not doing something, I really encourage you to, to start. I just want to share about a, a, simple, a fairly simple practice I've started um, and it's making a difference. For me, it's sitting in silence in God's presence for a few minutes each morning. It's, it's not long. It's literally three or four minutes. Um, I'll pick a phrase... Perhaps it's just uh, Jesus, you are Lord, or something from the Lord's Prayer, like just a line. And I'll let that sit in my mind for a couple of minutes. And what I'm trying to do with that is reach back to some of the older practices of stillness and silence before God. Um, for me, I'm also trying to break my dependence on noise and input and uh, all the things that seem to crash around in my brain all the time. And look, I find this super hard to do. I've been doing it for a bit over 12 months. Um, I still find all kinds of things coming into my mind, um, family, work, hair dryers, 
It's always annoying. Um, But it consistently does one thing for me. It makes me realise that I'm not the most important person in the world, which is a bit startling, to be honest. But I also realise that what I'm doing can wait. I am a terrible, terrible people pleaser in lots of ways. But this practice is teaching me it can wait. Work can wait. Family can wait. Everything can wait while I wait on God, just for a few minutes. I actually started this... um, I was, a, I was a bit desperate. I was, I was really struggling with work and, and thinking really seriously about whether to quit. Um, and one, reason, one of the reasons I hadn't left was because deep down I think I had a fear that this wasn't necessarily about my specific job situation, but it was about me and my attitude to my job, how I, how I was um, the place work had in my life in terms of its priority. Um, Interestingly, after starting this practice, I'm probably busier than ever at work at the moment, but it doesn't have the same impact that it did 12 months ago. Um, I don't... Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that that I'm cured or or achieved some sort of enlightenment. I think if you spoke to my family, I think they'd agree that I don't always get this right. But I do feel like I'm able to put things aside at times... um, basically because God's God and I'm not. I've, I've, I'm putting him or starting to put him in his proper place. Look, for me, if I don't put God first, something else will be first. And my recommendation, choose God. He's a, a, much, a much more kind master. Jesus even says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's still a yoke and a burden. There's no escaping that. Uh, but do you, want, do you want one from Jesus? Or do you want to make one for yourself? Do you think you'll do a better job than Jesus of making a yoke or a burden for yourself or taking one on? And look, that's, that's probably a bit flippant. Um, it can be really hard to give up what we hold dear. Again, I love what Carol had to share about her own challenge of being the boss in her life and giving that up. I'm sure she'd tell you it hasn't been easy. But on the other hand, uh, it's been well worth it for her. So God's kingdom is, is here now. Um, and we can all be part of it. God invites us to come as we are. Notice the people being baptised and following Jesus aren't the scholarly middle-class types who have it all together. They're people with issues and problems, poor and broken, like most of us, really, in one way or another. The poor are just a bit more honest about it. I think also it's easier when you have a nice middle-class life. You feel like you have more to give up if you want to choose to follow Jesus. No wonder Jesus gave so many warnings about the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God. But the not yet gives us hope. We don't have to stay like we are. When we come into the kingdom and embrace the good news, God will start his work to transform us. That work can be hard, as Carol has shared, and I've found it, I'm sure just about everyone here who's done this has. As Andrew shared, in transforming people and bringing them into the kingdom, God transforms the world, though. Do you know what pagan Rome was like? How the poor and the marginalised were treated? We often take for granted a Christian ethic, uh, an ideal and respect for life, because we've been immersed in it our whole lives. Perhaps it's starting to become a bit more obvious as that's starting to be taken away in recent times. But God's kingdom won't be denied. It's transforming and has always been bottom-up. Remember, Andrew spoke about the Beatitudes. Who's blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. 
These are the kinds of people who God is wanting to bring into his kingdom and the attributes he's growing in those who are in his kingdom. It's easy to look around at the world and think that maybe God isn't in control, to see it as a bit of a wrestling match between God and Satan. But I want to remind you that God won. On a cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He died a sinless man to take away the sin of the world and to kick off the kingdom of God. This is good news because Jesus didn't stay dead but rose and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. And unlike any other kingdom, this one won't end but will go on forever. That's the hope we have as Christians and why both the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God should encourage us. So we're going to jump into communion now and what do we remember and celebrate in communion? The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. We take his body and blood and remember him and that we are now in the kingdom of God because of him. We have an ancestry of spiritual mothers and fathers who are before us in the faith all the way back to Jesus. We take part in something that Jesus first inaugurated just before he was crucified and that Christians have been doing ever since. What do we also do in communion? We look forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of history when the kingdom of God is consummated and there is no longer a now and not yet but just a great now in the presence of our Lord. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until the kingdom is fulfilled. Well, I'm going to invite, as uh, we'll have some music playing in a minute, which uh, echoes this verse about remembering and proclaiming until our king comes again. We invite this side to come forward row by row, Come out around and then back through the middle once you've received the elements and then this side will do the same. Please hold the the cracker and the juice and we'll eat and drink together. Jesus, you are the King of Kings. Thank you for this object lesson that we can repeat over and over again to remember you. 
we eat this as we eat this cracker, this bread, we receive we receive your sacrifice for our sins. Let's eat. Lord Jesus, as we remember the blood that just poured out of your body, we take this cup and receive the cleansing that you give us from all our sin and wickedness and brokenness. Let's drink together. There's a phrase in that song which Christians have been saying for many, many, many years. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Say it with me. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Now turn to each other and say it. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The kingdom has come in Christ and the kingdom will be fulfilled when he returns. Invite the musos to come up. We sang a song earlier about um, how we will be joining that in that great hallelujah. We can enjoy singing hallelujah to God now with the, with the body of Christ in the kingdom of God. And one day we will sing the same song with all of his people. And this next song is a similar one. The hymn of heaven. The hymn of the kingdom of God, the hymn, the hymn that we can sing now and we will sing again one day. I invite you to stand. Just for your wonderful word this morning, I really just loved how you brought those passages to us and brought it to life. And there's so much in there for us to take away. Um, but I'm going to pray now. We'll just close and yeah, join me, will you? Thank you, Lord, just uh, for that picture that Ben painted of the now and not yet, that we uh, can experience you, Lord. We can have that uh, joy of who you are and what you've brought to us, that that burden is light and that your yoke is easy, Lord, that we um, can trust you. But you also, you want our undivided attention. Father, that's the challenge, and I think uh, we all know we want that. And Lord, we just pray, Father, that you will stir in us in our heart, that you'll bring that kingdom view, that that hope of what we've just been singing about, Lord, that um, we can put that front of mind, take that moment just to really cherish who you are and uh, build that in our minds and in our lives, that it's not just a one-off thing, Lord, that we can experience you in the full right now, but also look forward to the future. We just bless you and, uh, yeah, Lord, just... uh, 
we want to go into this week reflecting on that and uh, yeah just pray Father that you will just change our hearts that we can submit it to you and, and, and get deeper into your word and experience what you're telling us there about the kingdom in Jesus precious name we pray Amen alright folks well thank you so much um, it's been great to have you here we've got just want to point out, we've, we're setting up some chairs here around the cross, and that's just a place for us to come and pray. And um, if you would like prayer, I would encourage you to come forward and, and just spend some time there. We'll, we'll be there as available to pray with you. And of course, we've got the prayer room at the back too, if you need some, uh, to some, someone to pray with privately. So I encourage you to do that. But for now, look, uh, I hope you enjoy some fellowship together, have some coffee, um, and enjoy your week. Thanks a lot. I can just pray.